Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Ladies and gentlemen, I am thrilled to introduce the third edition of the Behind the Knife Absite Podcast Companion. This latest version offers enhanced images with immersive audio content for each section, making it an unparalleled educational resource. We've expanded our content with new chapters covering topics like MIS, oncology, OBGYN, urology, and more. You can find the book in both print and ebook formats on Amazon. Get ready to elevate your knowledge and achieve top Absite scores with the all new Behind the Knife Absite Podcast Companion, an indispensable partner on your path to surgical excellence. Good luck on the upcoming Absite exam and dominate the day. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. My name is Ben Vieira. I'll be your host today as we continue our series in minimally evasive surgery. For brief introductions, I'm a current general surgery resident at University of Washington. Here with me is Paul Herman, another resident at University of Washington, as well as several of our MIS faculty, Dr. White, Dr. Wright, and Dr. Strillo. Today, for our segment on clinical challenges in minimally invasive surgery, we're excited to be discussing minimally invasive surgery in the pregnant patient, a guide to how to approach the OR tips and tricks for technical success. To begin, we'd like to first give a shout out to two excellent prior BTK episodes from 2021 focused on non-obstetric surgery in the pregnant patient. They are titled Clinical Challenges in Trauma Surgery, the Pregnant Trauma Patient, and Journal Review in Emergency General Surgery, Colstitis in Pregnancy. These will provide some background for our discussion today. So that first episode, the one regarding trauma in pregnant patients, provided a really good review of the physiologic changes associated with pregnancy, as well as the workup that pregnant patients may need to get in the emergency department. The second episode discussed two large population studies comparing outcomes of laparoscopic cholecystectomy in pregnant patients, specifically comparing outcomes between antepartum cholecystectomy during the first three months preceding delivery compared to postpartum cholecystectomy during the three months following delivery. Outcomes evaluated included rate of preterm delivery, length of stay, readmission rate, conversion to open surgery, fetal demise, and composite maternal outcomes, among some others. 
They talked about two studies during this podcast. So the first study was by Fong et al. And they found that patients who underwent lap coli during the third trimester of pregnancy had a higher conversion rate to open, 13 versus 2%, as well as higher rates of preterm delivery, length of hospital stay, and readmission. In contrast, the second paper our colleagues discussed uh, on the episode by Hong et al. initially found a higher rate of preterm delivery with the antepartum cholecystectomy group, but subgroup analysis later found that there were no differences in any major outcomes, including composite maternal outcome, 30-day readmission, and fetal demise between the antepartum and postpartum cholecystectomy group. Collectively, what many feel is that cholecystectomy can be safely delayed if the patient presents in the very late third trimester of pregnancy, but otherwise many surgeons would choose to operate during pregnancy. For a full discussion of the differences and outcomes and how to counsel these patients, we refer you to those prior episodes. But today we want to talk about some clinical scenarios uh, that you may encounter in your own career. So it's well established that pregnant patients presenting with acute surgical disease of the abdomen should be offered surgery as indicated, similar to non-pregnant patients, of course, with close consultation with our OBGYN colleagues. We'd refer you to a paper from the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and the American Society of Anesthesiologists titled Non-Obstetric Surgery During Pregnancy. Here, and I quote, a pregnant woman should never be denied medically necessary surgery or have that surgery delayed regardless of trimester because this can adversely affect the pregnant woman and her fetus. Elective surgery should be postponed until after delivery. So today, we're going to work through several case scenarios with an emphasis on some of the key details that you may need to know if you're a resident or in attending seeing a pregnant patient. Things we'll talk about are obtaining laparoscopic access without causing iatrogenic injury, conversion to open, possible use of robotic surgery, and others. To begin, I'll pass it off to my colleague, Paul. Thanks, Ben. For some background before we jump into the case, Dr. White, can you tell us a little bit about the epidemiology of non-obstetric surgery in pregnancy? Yes, absolutely. This is something I've looked into several times when I've been on call and taking care of these patients. The estimated incidence varies based on study, but around 1 in 500 or even up to 1 in 100 pregnant patients require non-obstetric surgery during their pregnancy, with about half of these being surgeries of the GI tract. The most common non-obstetric surgical emergencies in the pregnant patient are acute cholecystitis and appendicitis. And in fact, given the hormonal changes of pregnancy, with elevated estrogen, there's actually an increased risk of gallstone formation in pregnancy. Up to 8% of pregnant women develop gallstones. It's estimated that in the U.S., nearly 3,000 appendectomies and 2,000 cholecystectomies are performed in pregnant patients each year. And just to add a little bit more about outcomes of non-obstetric surgery in pregnancy, there are some gray areas as discussed in the previous podcast. But let's remember that outside of those scenarios, pregnant patients with surgical diseases should have surgery. For pregnant patients who present with even a single bout of biliary colic, they have an extremely high recurrence rates of roughly 90%, 60%, and 40% when presenting in their first, second, and third trimester. According to National Inpatient Sample Study that analyzed data from 
Nearly 25,000 pregnant patients from 2003 to 2015, patients who underwent a lap poly compared to non-operative management, had lower rates of preterm delivery, labor, or abortion, and each day that a lap poly was delayed was associated with an increased risk of fetal complications. With regards to appendicitis, with prompt treatment, outcomes are similar in the pregnant and non-pregnant patient. However, with delayed treatment, the risk of per per perforation increases, and this in turn is associated with higher rates of fetal loss, preterm labor, and delivery, and maternal morbidity. All right, so let's start us off, Paul. Let's say you have a consult from the emergency room in a 24-year-old female who is pregnant with abdominal pain. So first I'm thinking about the underlying differences in physiology during pregnancy. As I talk to the emergency room provider and they're telling me a little bit about the patient, I think about the changes in vital signs that occur during pregnancy. During the first half of pregnancy, there's a progressive decline in blood pressure by about 10 to 20 millimeters of mercury of their systolic and diastolic pressure. But afterwards, during the third trimester, blood pressure returns to normal. Heart rate also tends to increase by 10 to 20 beats from baseline, and patients tend to have a higher respiratory rate during pregnancy. There's an increase in total red blood cell mass, and due to higher blood volume, pregnant patients can bleed more, approximately one-third of their blood volume, before their vitals reflect hemorrhagic shock. Although there's this increase in red blood cell mass, there's a greater increase in plasma volume, resulting in a dilutional anemia. The low end of hemoglobin is about 12 in a non-pregnant patient, which drops to 11.5 in the first trimester and down to about 9.5 during the third trimester. The normal white blood cell count range also increases during pregnancy, up to 15, being within normal limits by the end of the third trimester. There's hormonal changes during pregnancy that relax the lower esophageal sphincter, and the intra-abdominal organs also change position as the uterus exerts upward pressure. This results in both increased risk of gastroesophageal reflux during pregnancy, as well as higher risk of aspiration during intubation. And so these patients are definitely at higher risk intubation. Next, pregnancy is a hypercoagulable state with a five times increased risk for venous thromboembolism. Awesome. So I wanted to, to add on to Paul's discussion to talk a little bit about imaging. One of the key principles when you're thinking about imaging a pregnant patient that are previous BTK episode on the, in the trauma pregnant patient hammered down really well is we want to minimize radiation, but not at the expense of having a good diagnosis and not at the expense of potentially compromising maternal and pedal health. So we're talking about things like appendectomies and cholestectomies. The patient's coming in with acute cholestitis, acute appendicitis. In the pregnant patient, we generally want to start with ultrasound. There's no radiation, of course, and they have pretty high sensitivity and specificity. Most studies for an acute appendicitis found a sensitivity and specificity around 75 and 90% respectively. And for biliary disease, the diagnostic accuracy of an ultrasound is about 90%. So often you can diagnose these with ultrasound. The SAGES guidelines say that ultrasound is safe and effective in identifying the etiology of acute abdominal pain and should be the initial imaging test of choice. But if the ultrasound isn't sufficient, we then have to think about other imaging modalities. As far as radiation, it's not well studied, but we think that radiation, especially in early pregnancy, should be avoided. Prior to about 17 weeks, fetuses are, are undergoing organogenesis, so there's a high risk of teratogenicity during this time. 
Later on, the concern is more related to childhood leukemia. So for example, radiation in the third trimester is more associated with leukemia several years after birth. As far as some numbers to throw out so you have a sense of what these really look like in real life, the U.S. Nuclear Regulation Commission recommends that the cumulative radiation dose to a fetus be less than 50 to 100 milligrays in total. And for reference, a single CT pelvis can be about 30 milligrays, and if you do a CT avon pelvis, it's higher than that. One thing that's really important to, to mention as well is that CT scan should not be the initial imaging of, of choice and may maybe be needed to be used in urgent situations, but instead, MRI is actually preferred in pregnancy because it's non-radiating. As far as more advanced studies, intraoperative cholangiogram can expose the fetus to 20 to 50 milligrays, so if you come across that while you're doing a lap coli. And ERCP can expose the fetus to 20 to 100 milligrays, and maybe even more if it's an extensive study. So those are things to, to think about. SAGE's guidelines actually recommends the MRI as opposed to a CT scan, if able, during pregnancy. If I can jump in for a minute and just add that delaying your diagnosis can be more harmful than the radiation. So although I agree that ultrasound and MRI are probably best, if you need to do a study, it's better to get the study and make the diagnosis so you can intervene early. So Dr. Citrillo, getting back to our case. So you have a patient in the emergency department with abdominal pain. She's, let's say, in her first trimester and she gets an ultrasound that's equivocal for appendicitis. What are you doing in actual clinical practice? Are you proceeding with an MRI? Is the patient going to get a CT scan? And then as a maybe secondary talking point, would there ever be a time when you have a patient who clinically looks like they have a suspected diagnosis, such as appendicitis, and you may just proceed with a diagnostic laparoscopy prior to a CT scan, for example? I think in the setting of an equivocal CT or ultrasound, excuse me, in a first trimester pregnancy, I would proceed with MRI first. I think it increases your chance of diagnostic success. And as we said before, it does not present radiation exposure to the fetus, especially. First trimester makes it more challenging, a harder decision to make, in my opinion, whether to pull the trigger on the CT or to proceed to the operating room. I think you have to have close consultation with your obstetrics colleagues, close consultation with the family and the patient and really discuss it, how sick they are. Is there perforation? Is there an abscess? How severe is the white blood cell count? Is the patient septic? Or how much time do you have to make these decisions and have these conversations? My preference would be if you have a high clinical suspicion and equivocal imaging findings, to really take an in-depth look at your imaging findings. Are there other signs that maybe aren't being presented in just the overall impression? If you look at the MRI, is there generalized inflammation or fat shredding in the right lower quadrant or right hemiabdomen that would maybe suggest some inflammation in that area that would increase your likelihood that this is truly appendicitis? In general, in a first trimester pregnancy, close consultation discussion with uh, obstetrics and the patient, I think, is in order. And if you have a high enough index of suspicion with any possible signs in imaging, such as some inflammation in the right lower quadrant, maybe some fat stranding that's seen if they can't identify the appendix on ultrasound, I think doing a laparoscopy, especially in a first trimester patient, should be considered for fear of progression of disease. And remember that we're coming at this from the lens of general surgery, but there's lots of non-general surgery stecker causes of abdominal pain, ignectal torsion, ectopic pregnancy, and 
if they can't be diagnosed on ultrasound, those probably belong in the OR, at least some of those belong in the OR anyway. So that's where perhaps a diagnostic laparoscopy, if you really can't figure it out on imaging, might be warranted. And I'm going to be sort of the, talk about the elephant in the room here, the controversial side, and just remind everyone that there are antibiotics that are saved during pregnancy. And there are antibiotic courses for other disease processes that women have to take. Urinary tract infection, there's diabetes, there are other issues. But it's a very sensitive topic because there is another life besides the woman. There's a baby in hand. So something unique to us at University of Washington is doing the CODA trial for appendicitis and studying antibiotics in pregnant patients is very controversial. But I think that I'm not advocating this because I would hate to see the progression of disease process lead to preterm labor. However, these are questions that we always have to ask ourselves when we're dealing with a specific patient. There's no treatment protocol that is appropriate for every single patient. And we have to remember all the tools that we have in our toolbox. I not to make this personal, but I was exposed to a patient with bacterial meningitis when I was pregnant in the operating room, and I had to go on antibiotic prophylaxis for two weeks. So it's there are just reminding everyone that there are other things. And that it was the second trimester, but yeah, still. Yeah, it's interesting. Pregnancy was actually an exclusion for the CODA trial. So we don't have any data to guide that. It's not that it's right or wrong. We just literally have no data. I think it's a great role for shared decision-making with our patients. And if there's not going to be a right or wrong answer, and different women are going to choose differently for their... Yeah, thank you all for that. Say we're convinced of the diagnosis... The next thing we want to think about is making sure we involve our obstetric colleagues early. All pregnant patients with confirmed non-obstetric surgical disease should have obstetric consultation. And when non-obstetric surgery is planned, the primary obstetric provider for the patient should be notified. If fetal monitoring is going to be used, which it should be if you're planning surgery, there are several considerations that ACOG recommends. Surgery should be done in an institution with neonatal and pediatric services, and an obstetric care provider with cesarean delivery purposes should be readily available. Qualified individuals should be readily available to interpret fetal heart rate patterns as well. And general guidelines for fetal monitoring include, if the fetus is considered pre-viable, it's generally sufficient to ascertain fetal heart rate by Doppler before and after the procedure. If the fetus is considered viable, simultaneous electronic fetal heart monitoring and contraction monitoring should be performed before and after the procedure to assess fetal well-being and the absence of contractions. All right. Thank you, Paul. So we wanted to dive into just a few scenarios so that if you're going to operate on a patient, whether you're a resident or attending, you have a sense of how to go about it. So Dr. Wright, I was wondering if you could chat with us about how you set up and prepare for a patient, say a pregnant patient with diagnosed acute appendicitis seen on ultrasound. So things that we're thinking about, do you do this minimally evasively versus open? If you're doing it minimally invasively, how do you set up the room? How do you prep the patient? Where are you putting your trocars? Does that change based on the trimester of pregnancy? Sure. So I think that the benefits of laparoscopy are really the same for pregnant 
women just as they are for anyone else. Pain, decreased ileus, et cetera. So my bias, I mean, of course, I'm a minimally invasive surgeon, so my bias is towards minimally invasive surgery. But I think that's also true, for example, in appendicitis, the appendix can be displaced by the growing uterus. So if you try to do an open incision and you're in the wrong location, it actually makes it quite a bit harder. So I, I think actually minimally invasive surgery is preferable. I think that there are some considerations. Oftentimes, report placement has to be a little bit different. I will often get in, for example, at the left costal margin instead of, say, periumbilical because it gets you further away from the gravid uterus. I think it's a safer place to get in during pregnancy. But I'll still use a varus needle and an optical trocar, which is my personal routine. I don't change what I would do normally. You mentioned the SAGES guidelines. I, I do want to highlight them as a great resource if you need to operate on a pregnant woman or are seeing a pregnant patient. They, the SAGES guidelines recommends that you can use normal insufflation pressures at 15. That said, just an abundance of caution, I'll keep, to keep my pressures at 15 while I get my ports in, and then I'll usually drop them as low as I feasibly can and still proceed safely, so often down to a pressure of 10 or 12. I think some of the other guidelines, you want to think about positioning the patient in lateral decubitus to take some pressure off the venous return to the heart. You often can't do a full lateral, but you can at least put a bump under one side. So I think that's the other positioning tidbit. I just want to add that I think it's appropriate to do what you do safely. So I agree I would use a various needle and optical trocar. I think one of the points to remember is just for residents and students to remember the fundal height. I always remember at 20 weeks, it's at the umbilicus, so sort of below or above there, but really starting at a Palmer's point. You have to remember with every laparoscopic operation, you have to be flexible knowing that there are anatomic variations. So if there is, if you have a lap api with a high retrocecal retroperitoneal appendix that's by the kidney, you're moving your ports around. Well, you need to consider that and move your ports accordingly. Yeah, I think flexibility is key. I'm a big believer that whatever you do best, you should do most often. So whatever access you get for the abdomen in your standard laparoscopic case is what you should attempt, but the positioning should be thought of in a different spot. So again, as Dr. White said, moving into the upper abdomen is probably safest. Personally, I like using a pure optical trocar with insufflation that can be applied. The applied medical trocars that are available at a lot of hospitals have this, where you can get just the very tip of your of the obturator in through the peritoneum, and you can start insufflating. So you sort of have the best of both worlds of some visualization without it being completely blind. But again, I think varus needle is very safe. I think Cassad has proven to be very safe as well. And I totally agree with what Dr. White just said. Flexibility is the key. I think you put in a port and you should have a general framework of where you think you want to put your ports, but you should really be made on a case-by-case -case basis. We have six other general surgery partners and none of us place our ports in standard appies in the same spot or standard gallbladders in the same spot. So when you're looking at diagrams online, those are general recommendations, but really it should be based on triangulation appropriate spacing between ports and what the body gives you. So putting in a port, looking around, using a 30-degree scope to make sure you can really look around corners is super important in these kind of cases. And just using basic principles of triangulation, appropriate spacing to give yourself the best chance. And 
if you have to place an extra five, I don't think that's going to hurt anybody if it makes the case go faster. Yeah, one of my old colleagues, Marcelo Hinojosa, used to say fives are free. So <laughs> just pop in it. If you need an extra, extra five millimeter port, just put it in. Yeah, I mean, again, if you have that really hard retro peritoneal appendix where there's already a little inflammation or some pus back there, sometimes, and this is Dr. White's favorite position for a port, the right upper quadrant is a great port for an appy. Not a lot of us use it, but that's a perfect spot. It's going to be far away from everything, and it's going to be a great place to get in. In terms of the initial access, I think either Palmer's Point or mirror image on the right side is fine, but I would definitely stay away from the umbilicus in pregnant patients. Yeah, by the way, on, on cholecystitis, that access point for your left upper quadrant, if you get in at Palmer's Point, you can actually use that instead of the normal sort of midline sub-xiphoid port that a lot of people use. So That's what Dr. Trula does, I think, right? Sort of, yeah. Yeah, so so that's a you get in in the left upper quadrant, and you can use that as your dissection. Yeah, that was actually where my mentor for residency, he would put his port standardly, minimize midline ports, try to go through muscle for a lot of things. But again, you just have to be flexible, and you have to be able to move the patient, set up the room really well, get yourself in good ergonomic position, and just communicate, communicate, communicate. This is the perfect case to spend an extra two minutes before the patient's put in the room and goes to sleep to think of every single piece of equipment you would need. Maybe you want a clip applier in case your stapler is not firing as well as you want or you just need a little bit more. Maybe you like a particular endocatch bag that isn't the standard one that most other people use. Take a couple extra minutes before the patient goes to sleep and set your room up for success. Yeah, I'll point out, since we referred earlier to some other behind-the-knife episodes, we have an earlier behind-the-knife episode on ergonomics and surgery that I'd refer folks to. I think we also have to talk about the ergonomics of the pregnant surgeon. I don't know that we have time today, but I think we'll perhaps have a future behind-the-knife episode on pregnancy for surgeons. Perfect. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And thanks for all that input on access and how you place your pores. That's super helpful as a trainee. One question, a couple wrinkles come up in my mind is that we're exposed to lots of different types of access at different sites. And so I wondered if one of you would comment on your access, if your access would change in a patient that's had, a say, a prior midline laparotomy for 
a small bowel obstruction and had a bowel resection and you're concerned for possible adhesive disease with that, um, would you still do your closed varus um, access or would you think about an open cut down? Um, and then also for surgeons that maybe are more comfortable with an open Hassan technique and usually do it at the thumbo, thoughts on just doing that higher up on the midline or doing an open, I haven't seen open Hassan technique in one of the upper quadrants, but I wondered if you'd comment on that. It's a sensitive subject for me, so I'm going to jump into it. <laughs> I respect everybody that does Hassan quartz, but the logic behind them escapes me sometimes because you still cannot see underneath the fascia without making an incision or a cut into the fascia. So if you have an adhesion there, you're still going to make an injury. So again, I'll go back to my earlier statement. Whatever you do best, you should do the most often. But I've done Hassan ports off midline. I mean, you essentially do an open appy through the same type of incision. It's just a little bit bigger, right? You incise your anterior fascia, you bluntly split your muscle, then you would grasp your posterior sheath, make your incision, and get access that way with, again, trying to spare the muscle on the way through without just bogeying through it. A nice trick is you put in a peel in one direction spread, then the other direction spread, and you keep working your way down. You can do that with Army Navies. Similar to when you make an ileostomy, it's the same kind of thing getting through that abdominal wall. I mean, Hassan off midline is just... It's just surgery, and that's what we do. What I think is extremely important in this case is using Palmer's Point. We, from experience and literature, there is support that using Palmer's Point is the safe place to go. But if you don't know how to use a varus needle, you should not be using it anywhere. And you really have to learn the nuances behind the varus needle, and you have to understand that it's a feel. It is a sight and sound thing as well, because you're listening for the clicks of the fascia. You're watching as the saline drops, and then you're watching the abdomen expand appropriately. If you're not using all your senses when using the varus needle, then you sh then you're not doing it correctly. You need to learn how to do that. And if you can't get in safely at Palmer's Point, yes, it's okay to try on the, in the right upper quadrant, but you have to remember your anatomy. The liver is right there. You don't want to insulate the liver and get a CO2 embolism. So you just have to be a smart, safe surgeon. And if you can't get in, let's open. What's the big deal, right? You have to do what's right for the patient. Yeah, I, th I think a pregnant, pregnant patient is not the one to be learning a new technique. So do when to do well. Um, that said, all three of us are fundamentally hernia surgeons, so we'd like to stay off midline if we can. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things I find challenging with varus needles is kind of the more obese abdominal wall. The clicks can be very misleading as you go through. Your scarpa's layer can be thicker. You can have these little pockets where there's more tough kind of fibrous fat on the way down. I tend to switch to a, that optical trocar in those patients because... I think it's a little easier to not get fooled on your way through. And I like to use some basic numbers to kind of help, as Dr. White said, assess your kind of accuracy of having your varus needle in the correct place. Generally, an opening pressure of nine or less. But again, in a pregnant patient, your intra-abdominal pressure when you open is going to be higher due to the gravid uterus. You should have a good flow rate between 0.5 liters per minute or per hour, excuse me, at about two. That should be about the maximum you can get through the varus needle. So you should see a flow rate. You should see a relatively low opening pressure. 
and you should see the belly start to rise. And when you tap, you can start to hear that tympanic sound we all love to hear. Everyone remembers when that meme went around with a seal slapping its own belly. There's a true purpose to that. And it gets back to that question about the midline laparotomy patient. One of the things that can can help you assess how bad your adhesions are going to be is if you're tapping the belly and you feel confident about your varus needle access and it sounds hollow on your varus needle side and dull on the other side, you have to be concerned that you're either preperineal or you're going to have a lot of adhesions to deal with on the way in. Just to circle back to specifically in pregnancy, I think one thing to be aware of is that if your port position is a little bit off of your usual, for example, you're doing a cholecystectomy and you have to place your camera port a little higher than normal, be very careful because changes in visual perception can lead to errors in interpretation of anatomy. And you don't want to get a bile duct injury because your vision isn't what you're used to. To talk about a few more scenarios, so... We brought up the CODA trial before, which, as people probably know, it's, it goes into one of these studies and one of these new studies in the literature regarding outcomes between treating a patient with acute appendicitis with antibiotics versus surgery. I think we're all sort of aware of, of the new literature. So let's say a pregnant patient comes in and she has acute appendicitis with what looks like a small perforation. Are you guys applying the CODA trial? Are you talking to the patient about the risk benefits? Are you recommending surgery versus non-operative management? And are you thinking about it differently based on their just how far along they are, late third trimester versus second trimester? I just you have to think about the patient again, the disease process. So perforated appendicitis creates a challenging situation where the edema and the phlegmon can be so invasive that it encompasses the small bowel and colon and can frequently lead to needing to do an ileocecectomy or, and that may, depending on the surgeon's hands, may need to be done open. But it does extend the anesthetic time and there is a baby to think about at that time. So I, I think it just brings you back to your principles of where to go when. I think we all want guidelines and exact protocols to follow, but I think that we have to remember that there's a disease process behind this beyond that. Yeah, and just as, again, the CODA trial excluded pregnancy and also was only for uncomplicated appendicitis. So it didn't include the patient, for example, with that large phlegmon so in the absence of data, I think a lot of surgeons default to surgery. It's all our bias. That said, if you talk to a patient and the patient is insistent on non-operative treatment, would I agree to it? Perhaps, as long as you're really careful about close follow-up. But I think that's a, a really individual decision that you'd have to come to with a, a very close and thorough conversation with the patient. And I think how far along, as you said, is very important in those patients. You know, as mid-second trimester or even late-second trimester patient, they have a lot more time to be pregnant, to be sitting with an intolib infection that could be causing issues. I'm probably actually going to be more aggressive in that patient than a very late third trimester patient taking to the OR. Uh, what, what I don't want to see happen, and I, I'm not an author at the CODA trial, but what I don't want to see happen is people say, oh, the CODA trial says antibiotics are okay, and I have this pregnant patient. So I'm just going to put them on antibiotics so I don't have to worry about surgery. Because, again, that could delay care and cause more problems. So I, I think we have to be careful about 
jumping to this conclusion that, oh, appendicitis now can be treated with antibiotics so we can avoid surgery in a pregnant woman, pregnant patient, sorry, when we know that that if surgery is necessary, it's actually the safest thing for the patient. I agree. I just wanted to bring up one other population of patients real quick, which is the late third trimester patient with appendicitis or cholecystitis. And these are patients we do see. So the late third trimester patient with cholecystitis, not cholecystitis, it's usually biliary colic, but occasionally it'll be cholecystitis. We really try to treat them conservatively and get them through their labor and bring them back postpartum to do the operation. I've had one instance in my career in a 38-week pregnant female who had acute appendicitis with shared decision-making. The patient was started on tocolytics. This is a patient that under spinal, I did an open appendectomy on, and the, it was straightforward. My incision was in it higher, but it was exactly where she was tender, exactly where the MRI showed her appendix was. And she did fine and didn't go into preterm later. And that's anecdotal, but you have to remember, we can... We give spinals for C-sections. So in later term pregnancy, that can be used. Yeah. And that also, you know, one thing we haven't talked about yet, but is super important in these cases is your post-operative care. These are not the patients you just send home after a quote unquote uncomplicated appendectomy. You definitely want to have these patients admitted for the night to make sure they're going to be doing okay. Again, talk to your obstetrics team, inform the outpatient obstetrics team, so that the patient really feels uh, safe and well cared for. Because you really are not out of the window right after surgery. You have to make sure that they kind of get through the night and then into the next day. And that you're, then you can start to feel confident that just kind of everything is going to be okay at that point. So one, one additional scenario that we came across, talking about third trimester, maybe not late third trimester, but cuculostitis in third trimester one of the studies that was discussed in the previous podcast, but it's also well quoted in other studies as well, there is a much higher conversion rate to open when you're doing a gallbladder in the third trimester, as high as almost 20% in third trimester pregnant patients. Can you guys comment on that? Has your experience, how has your experience been with these third trimester gallbladders? What do you think is accounting for such a high conversion rate? From all of our extensive experience in third trimester, I don't have any experience. Yeah. But Doctor Wright explained exactly why it happened just before. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple of factors. One is your port positioning and your camera placement may be a little bit different. I think also, I think there's a delay in operating. Oftentimes, if you're operating in a third trimester, these are folks that have been in with biliary colic. That's really actually cholecystitis, and it may have been smoldering for a while. So I think the patient population isn't your straightforward, simple outpatient gallbladder. So I think that explains a higher conversion rate. That said, I also think it's important to talk about bailout strategies, which are going to be the same in a pregnant patient as it is in a non-pregnant patient, and knowing your limits. And one thing that I worry about a little bit in the modern era is we do so few open coles, it may be safer to put in a cholecystostomy tube or doing a subtotal cholecystectomy as opposed to converting to open. Because what happens is you convert to open, and it's not any easier once you convert to open. I think you put a cold system. One thing I do want to mention, because I caught myself doing this, I try to use gender-inclusive language, and I, I did catch myself using some gendered language. So 
just for folks listening out there, you should probably be using pregnant patient as a, a more inclusive language. Thanks, Dr. Wright. Well, we had one sort of final question for you, Dr. White, because you are the master robotic surgeon. Are you doing the robot on, on any of these pregnant patients? No. <laughs> no, it's not necessary. It's not. I understand that in some other disciplines, surgical disciplines, it may be necessary. I haven't done it. I mean, I would say robotic surgery is laparoscopic surgery. I don't think it's any different from a physiologic standpoint. But I personally, I'm I'm not using the robot for appies and coleys now, so I would exactly. use it in this situation. Well, with that, we want to thank you all for tuning in and leave you with some quick hits. When it comes to imaging, ultrasound first. If ultrasound is equivocal and your patient is stable and a several-hour delay in diagnosis will not cause harm, proceed with MRI. If more urgent diagnosis is necessary, CT abdomen pelvis should be obtained, which averages in the range of 20 to 50 milligray of radiation exposure, which is less than the recommended maximum cumulative radiation dose during pregnancy of 50 to 100 milligray. Second, always involve your obstetric colleagues early as they will provide essential input on prioritizing the health of the mother and the fetus and should be on standby for possible cesarean if you are required to take a third trimester pregnant patient for surgery. On access, I turn it over to Dr. Citrullo. I'll just leave with a point I've made twice through this podcast already. Uh, for access, I think is the thing that often causes the most stress in these patients. Do what you do the best, but consider upper abdomen placement for your initial port. So do whatever technique you think you do the best, but think about a different position in this population of patients. And don't be afraid to get an ultrasound machine out. I would also throw in there that just like this is not the patient population to learn something new, it's also not the patient population to to do on your own. So even if you're the one on call, call on partner, call on help. You want to be fast and efficient and make things as easy as possible. So until then, dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.
This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.